Hey there. The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. One of our amazing sponsors this week is Zen Parenting Radio. Zen Parenting Radio podcast combines self-awareness and mindfulness with pop culture and humor to expand compassion for ourselves, each other, and the world. You're going to hear a discussion between a spiritual and emotional mom and a logical and practical dad, a podcast to help you feel outstanding. Join my friends, Kathy and Todd, at zenparentingradio.com. Hello, yes, I'm your host, Mike Domish, and thrilled to be here with our cast from the Everyday Mindfulness Show. This week's cast includes Alan Anderson, Barry Moniak, and Holly Duckworth. You can learn all about them and check out our brilliant cast on our website at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. That's everydaymindfulnessshow.com. We're going to dive right into our very first question and our first question today, and I'm going to start with you, Holly, if that's okay. The first question is, what is the biggest myth you hear surrounding mindfulness? Because for everyone listening today, today's show is about mindfulness myth busters. We're going to bust the myths surrounding mindfulness. So Holly, what is the biggest myth you hear surrounding mindfulness? Well, Mike, thanks for having me on the show. Myths on mindfulness. One of the big ones that I hear from my friends and family and certainly my clients is, oh my gosh, if I step into a mindfulness practice, it's going to take more time. I don't have time to be mindful. And in my mindfulness practice, I actually pride myself on integrating it into the life that I already live. So um, yes, I do have, you know, a a few moments in the morning that I do my meditation and, and that type of practice. But I think it's also important for people to understand that mindfulness can be integrated into your life. You know, if I'm driving down the road, I might take a breath at a stop sign and just become fully present with my car and the stop sign. So that's a big myth for me. It's around, you know, mindfulness takes more time. And I think we need to look at ways we can sip our coffee or become fully present in a conversation to bring mindfulness into our everyday awareness. Holly, I love that. I love that idea that it's throughout the day. So you said at a stop sign while you're, you know, while you're living your everyday life, what do you mean by you're being mindful for those listening what are you doing in those moments? Whether, is it 30 seconds? Is it one minute? Is it five minutes? What, how does that present itself? Um, again, just in my practice, mindfulness, I, I try to be as free flowing with it. So, I, you know, as, as few expectations that I can let off my mindfulness practice, the more present I can be in the present moment. So in that, that example in the car, 
you know, we've all driven our cars and sometimes we sit at a stoplight for five minutes and, and that five minutes I'm, you know, I'm, I'm breathing, I'm, I'm present in my car. I might be listening to a, you know, a calming piece of music, um, but I'm not texting. I'm not on my phone. I'm not looking at the GPS. I just, I'm, I'm fully present in my car waiting, being present in that stop sign. My mindfulness practice in the morning, I may sit on my meditation pillow for 30 minutes, but I think letting go of some of the myths of mindfulness are giving yourself permission to create a practice that works for you, whether that's 30 seconds five times a day or 30 minutes twice a day. Yeah, I, I love that. Alan, Barry, yes. how, how do you find that you try to address that same issue with that that time? Because people do have this. I mean, this is a major myth. I hear it all the time too. I don't have time for that. Or someone will, oh, that's a different myth I'll go into later. Somebody will say to me, well, if I do, then I'll just go to sleep. But that's a different myth. So we'll address that a little bit later because it falls into their time concept of, I don't have time for that, but I do for a nap, you know, that kind of a thing. So how do, do you find that same thing? And what are ways you address the, the myth of time? Well, um, yeah, I agree with everything that Holly said. Um, I think it's really important that one is able to switch from a formal mindfulness practice to applied mindfulness practice in every situation. So whether it's in the car or having a sip of coffee or doing the dishes, to be able to say, I'm going to extend mindfulness into all of these moments of my life. So I think that's really, really helpful. I try to do the very same thing for myself. Um, so I think that's really just an essential key. However, I would just also add that in order to do that, to have that applied mindfulness, I think it's so essential that you have some kind of formal understanding of it as the basis. I, I like to, you know, because I've been a musician in my lifetime, I like to think about what it's like to practice music and then to play it. So kind of as Holly said, if you're able to let things go and let things be free, I think it needs an essential core of at least understanding what the practice is and what's it about. So I agree with Holly, and I think that basis is the extraordinarily important as well. Yeah, I would concur with that, Alan. This is Barry. I love the analogy of the difference between practicing and playing. A couple, two, three years ago, mindfulness wasn't a thing. Nobody knew about it. Nobody was talking about it unless you were going into some very old Taoist Tibetan type of writings. Mindfulness is a state of being. It's a state of awareness, a state of consciousness, a state of presence. So now it's being deemed this practice. The practice of mindfulness isn't mindfulness in, in my perception. Mindfulness is the way you show up, the way you go about doing whatever it is you're doing. The more you're paying attention, the more present you are, the more mindful you are. Anything that helps that happen, that's part of the practice that makes the playing more effective. Mm -hmm. So is this a chicken before the egg thing, the egg before the chicken thing? <laughs> because it, you bring up an interesting discussion, which I've heard people have before, Barry, which is, it's a mindset, it's a belief, it's a way of life versus it's a practice. And I and I know there are some authors and experts that say, no, it's a practice. And one requires the other, but which comes first? And so to get to that place, Barry, doesn't this go back to what Alan said? You have to practice to get to the mindset. Yes. And I would take the belief part out of it. Whoever's throwing that into the mix is just muddying the waters. Mindfulness has nothing to do with belief. It has everything to do with cognizance. How aware are you of who you are, how you're showing up, how you're affecting or influencing people or the environment around you? That is part of mindfulness. 
any practice that helps that happen is essential, just like you can't teach someone a language without breaking down, you know, the alphabet and words and phrases. You can't expect them to just jump in and be able to speak a foreign language if they haven't been given the tools. So you're saying all- it's not a, it's not a practice, but you must practice. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> good way of putting it. Yes. Okay. Awesome. So let's let's stay with you, Barry. What's another major myth that you hear with mindfulness? Well, a lot of people seem to be associating mindfulness, this this new thing, with positivity and and light and and being in the light and staying in the light. And it just kind of irks me because reality as we know it is made up of positive and negative, light and dark. And yet people keep wanting to lean towards, oh, I only want to, you know, I don't want to listen to the news because there's so much negativity. Uh, excuse me, it's reality, it's really happening, and if you're not paying attention to what's really happening, then you're not helping things move forward. So the mindful people, from again, from my perspective, are the ones looking at reality and going, okay, how can I best position myself and how can I best be of influence to help the, the larger picture move forward? Yeah, I would add to that, it's about a beingness, Versus a doingness. Absolutely. Am I going to be doing mindfulness, which <laughs> is like doing a task, like doing an email, or am I going to be more mindful in in the way I express myself and, quite frankly, receive those people into my life in in various exchanges we have during the day? And for, so, for me, that also I, I can really connect to what you're saying about it's both a practice and and a living it because uh, there's many, many times that, you know, I, I have to get back in the grace of, okay, wait a second. I'm not fully present in this moment. I'm not mindful. I'm not, you know, it's, it's not just the listening to a person, but it's, it's being energetically in resonance with them. Absolutely. I, I remember a long, long time ago, came across this information about what state of mind are you in when you're preparing food for other people? Oh, well, that's really interesting. And so I, I got into it and, and I experimented a little bit because I love cooking for other people. And sometimes I put together an amazing meal, but I was just bebopping to the music or thinking about whatever I was doing. And it was what it was. Then I tried something with very simple ingredients, not a lot of spice or flavor, but I was just really concentrating on how much kind of loving, nurturing energy could I put into this food that other people were going to partake of? And they went crazy for it. They thought it was the best thing they had ever eaten. And it didn't have that doingness that you're talking about. It didn't have all the spices and ingredients. It had that different energy and people somehow were able to pick up on it. I I think that leans to another myth, which is mindfulness has to be hard. Well, and I think that that myth comes from they they believe it's hard to quiet their mind. And that goes back to another myth of it has to be positivity or it has to be perfectly silence, you know, this type of a thing. There's so many myths overlapping here. But I think that idea that it has to be hard is the quiet the mind myth. I think uh, I think one thing that's also kind of helpful to us, it's a lovely boon in a sense, is that in order to it's not even a project to have to do these things, just like Barry's speaking about with cooking or whatever. In, in truth, we have mindfulness that's happening 
constantly. It really doesn't stop. I think a difficulty happens is understanding that we're working with our own distraction. That's part of the mindfulness thing. Probably the most yeah. essential thing, I think, of mindfulness is the ability to come back when you do get distracted. It's kind of like the dark and the light, etc. But I think that in order for us to really appreciate mindfulness, we can realize that right now I'm looking out my window and you know what? I'm listening what's going on. My eyes are on the green, beautiful green leaves out there. All these things are going on, so we're constantly there. We're constantly mindful. It's a matter of knowing how to work that in some sense because it's already happening. Yeah, I think mindfulness has gotten associated with quiet stillness. And, and again, that's something that I think is very beneficial for people to experience. But I don't know that when you're sitting in absolute silence and stillness that you're necessarily being mindful. You're just being still. When you get up and start moving, that's where the mindness kicks in for me. So I look at that image of the Maasai warrior, you know, standing on one foot all night long, paying attention to everything so that if anything's going to harm the village, they can let them know. That's a very different state of, of meditation or stillness. There's still a whole lot going on. So that's kind of my, my mental imagery icon of mindfulness. How much am I really aware of? And are there things off my radar screen because I'm just not looking or paying attention? I like that. I like that image a lot. Um, and I'd like to add another one because I think images are really powerful teachers. They aren't so... Uh, intellectual and they really help us so I think the Maasai warrior was great and uh, one that's used in the tradition I study in Shambhala Buddhism is the image of the tiger and this is ancient imagery uh, you can see it in temples in Bhutan it's been there for thousands of years a series called tiger lion Garuda dragon and the tiger part is the mindfulness part that you have the same kind of mindfulness as the tiger going through the jungle feeling everything on its paws, feeling every breeze of air on its on every hair, sense of sound, like that kind of presence, kind of kind of just very simple, not complicated, but all together there with feet on the ground, eyes open, ears open. So very much connecting to senses too, which I think helps overcome the the myth that mindfulness is some kind of intellectual exercise. Well, and I think that works really well with the myth that mindfulness is meditation, right? That they, that they are one and the same. And so if I cannot think, if I cannot be quiet without thoughts coming in my head, I'm failing. I'm, I'm failing. And so they, they look at that and go, well, no, that's natural for thoughts to come in your head. But it, this idea of the myth of what meditation is and then that meditation equals mindfulness. So if I struggle to have a quiet mind, then I can't be mindful. Uh, which is not true at all. Now, becoming mindful helps you with that mind, with that busy mind, but it doesn't have to be one before the other. You can work both at the same time. I'm just going to pause this for one second because I want to let everyone listening know about one of our amazing sponsors. And that's the book, Yes Means Yes, An Introduction to Consent and Boundaries by Christine Babinick. Yes Means Yes is for our youngest readers and takes one of the most basic tasks of childhood, learning to ask for permission, and applies to consent and healthy boundaries. Available on Amazon, Yes Means Yes, An Introduction to Consent and Boundaries. There, there's a myth we're, we're dancing with a little bit here that mindfulness often gets married up to a religious 
institution yes. religious practice and and I'm grateful that you you know you shared how you connect the two for you but I also for listeners always like to speak the additional experience that you don't have to have a religious tradition while while they often work together for some people if you choose not to participate in in a religious tradition you can also choose to be mindful I hope that came out correctly yes I, that's where I was going, Holly, is there's people who walk around, I think, with a chip on their shoulder that, that because they belong to some theosophy, that that makes them mindful. And it's like, no, it just makes you a member of that particular group. Now, if there's something in that involvement that helps you become more mindful, that's great, but it doesn't necessarily make it so. There's people who think that because they're vegetarian or vegan, or because they do a lot of yoga, you know, because they do qigong and and all these wonderful things that that makes them mindful, well, not until they apply it. Did you get anything out of those experiences that helps you be more mindful? And on the flip side of that, Barry, is the discussion that some people think, I don't have time for mindfulness, but they pray every day. And they pray in a way that is mindful, but they're not aware of what mindfulness is. Exactly. You know, I mean, that's the irony of it. There are people who pray simply for self wants and they don't even recognize that. And that's, that's not a place of mindfulness unless it's intentionality that you're working on, you know, like you want to bring positivity, but if it's about, you know, help this, help this, help that, but it's about materialism or, you know, individual wants, that's a different kind of prayer. But there's the person who prays for, let me be able to let go of the things I cannot control and let me have faith that, you know, that comes from a place of, of resting the mind, of grounding yourself, very mindful. But that same person would be like, well, I don't, I don't believe in that stuff when you talk about mindfulness, but yet they're praying in a way that's mindfulness. So it, it's just, you're sitting there going, wow, it's just a misperception. They don't understand the mindfulness concept of it. And even more so if I know that you just had a, an injury, an accident, a surgery, uh, maybe there's something going on in your family dynamic, and I'm sending you prayers, you know, loving, helpful, supportive energy that things go well, well, that's being extremely mindful because I'm, I'm participating in your reality. I think if more people did that, the world would be a better place. Yes. I mean, that, that being mindful can be sending the energy, right? So yes. some people say, I'm saying a prayer for you. Other people say, I'm sending this form of energy to you. It's the same mindfulness, ironically. You just, yes. it's, it's language that they're, that they're really changing. I've been paying attention a lot to different brain researchers that have been uh, working with mindfulness and coming up with amazing discoveries. So one person I really love is Daniel Goleman the author of Emotional Intelligence. Yeah. And I heard a wonderful uh, talk by him, and he was talking about how mindfulness is great, but it's not everything, and that we need really emotional intelligence for, to know, for in order to make mindfulness work. So his uh, claim is that it's very powerful, mindfulness, but not in every way claimed. And he feels like it's kind of oversold a little bit. So he talks about some very interesting things like um, you can be as mindful as you want to be, but if you have no sense of how to work with conflict management, you're gonna be—you you could be terrible at conflict management and still be mindful. You could be a person who is able to pay very close attention, but doesn't know how to seize an opportunity. He's talking about leadership actually in this situation, but I think for all of us, we're leaders in some way, right? Like 
just having a conversation, we can lead by example. Being a parent is being a leader. So there's all different ways that, that mindfulness shows up in how we react with one another. And I think there's this big difference between the emotional intelligence and emotional hijacking that happens, you know, in the fight or flight part of the brain. So if that's the part, if that's happening a lot, then all our mindfulness doesn't really measure up to a lot if we're not able to work that into other aspects of how we manage our own emotions, our own awareness of ourselves, knowing how other people see us as opposed to how we just see ourselves. I think there's just a, a, an incredible uh, amount of different ways that we can actually integrate that mindfulness into being a really kind of decent human being <laughs> to one another. Well, I think you're bringing up something really important. What was the, I can't believe I'm forgetting because I bought the book for tons of people, but the book out about six years ago now that everybody was, The Secret, there we go. Uh, in The Secret, there was one piece missing in the video version. I did not read the book. I watched the video and that was the work, right? So the, the video version, which I loved, but I thought something's missing here. And it, it would say, well, if I was intentional and thought that parking space is going to be there for me, the parking space is more likely to be there for me. And if I was intentional that way, the world would come to my, my waist. But there was missing one part that if I'm intentional and I work to make those things happen, it was missing that part, which is what you're bringing up. It can't just be intentionality. Like you have to build skills to, to do things, to make yourself better at that. Just like mindfulness. If I just say I'm going to be more mindful, but I don't actually work on that at all and take a, to understand the skill sets that help me get there, it's more a statement than a reality. Uh, and so I think that becomes really important to people to be able to discuss. What are you doing, actual doing, to make this become reality? My, it's interesting because a number of years ago, I was at an event, uh, a conference where Jack Canfield had won an award. And afterwards, there was a, a banquet or something, and, and I had an opportunity to talk to him. And I, and I asked him about that. I said, there's people running around that have this idea. If I just write it down on a piece of paper and stick it on my refrigerator, any day now, it's going to show up. He goes, I know, and they're not listening to everything I'm saying because I can tell you from the day I put it on the refrigerator, every single thing I thought, felt, and did that now 20 years later I'm receiving this reward or award and I'm not surprised because I know what I did to make it happen. They just jump from the note on the refrigerator to winning the award and leave out all the in between and I went interesting awesome but to that idea of, of work again I think that we could have a whole show on what, what what's mindful work you know because I I think part of that is the mindful allowing that in the case of Jack Canfield he had to allow himself to open up to meet the people he needed to meet to say the things he needed to say to write what he needed to write that yep. you know we think of again work sometimes falls into doing versus being or becoming yeah. that you seek to be mindful and, and both give to the world and, and receive into your world. Well, and that's the integration that if you're really being, it affects what you're doing. Yeah. Yes. And, and so it's not that they're separate. It's that they integrate together. Just like the cooking example. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Somebody can do something differently, but not necessarily be any more mindful. 
if they're paying attention to the mindfulness of the way they're doing it, now they can change something internally and do the same exact thing, but produce a different result. I love it. Let's jump into a new myth. The myth that if I work on mindfulness and take time to sit down and be quiet, I will fall asleep. Like I have a friend and I know this friend is listening right now, so she's going to get a kick out of this. But the joke with her family is that, hey, mom was meditating again. We caught her napping. And so, and she'll laugh that at the end of her meditation, she often nods off, you know, that type of thing. But there's this stereotype out there that that's what's going to happen. If I meditate, I'm really just going to fall asleep. It's, it's a phase. It's an initial thing in, in esoteric training, uh, esoteric meditative training. They talk about the Kunji effect, that when the mind gets to a certain level of frequency, for lack of a better language, that, that we're not used to or accustomed to, it's easy for us to nod out and then come back and go, well, where did I just go? What just happened? The more we practice that, the more we're able to hold an attention and awareness of focus while we are still. Those are all skills that, that will only behoove someone if they use them properly or effectively. You know, in the, in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, there's a whole list of things called obstacles and antidotes where they point out with pretty clear, pretty good accuracy, what are the things that can be distracting to us? perhaps distraction or sleepiness, and they have uh, antidotes to, for them. And uh, it's funny because some of the antidotes show up in the same things that we've learned about, for instance, breath work that people use, like how to breathe at this time, or if you're falling asleep, to stop meditating, take a break right there, and straighten up your posture. If you're doing formal practice, straighten up your, pro your posture and look out and just give yourself a moment to say, okay, I want to start fresh. I want to start again. Yep. So yep. I think I think what happens a lot is when we fall asleep, we think that's the end of it. But we should expect it. You know, falling asleep does come with it. Boredom does come with it. It just this all comes together. So to have some kind of toolbox that's kind of enlarged, you know, that you can know what breath, what kind of breathing to use, and what you should do with your posture, things like that. I think all those things can be very helpful in in allowing getting yourself to wake up and not just go into some kind of dream state. Accept yourself and, and bless yourself. And there's lots of ways to be mindful. Maybe she, you know, switches up her practice a little bit and tries journaling or tries meditative coloring. Or maybe, you know, you we used that cooking example earlier that let yourself sleep and let yourself be present, have some grace and gratitude in that and try again. Well, well, that's just it. There, that, there's nothing wrong with the sleep because yeah. it's at the end of her meditation. Maybe that's what she needs. Maybe she's tired yeah. and she needs to sleep, but she did the meditation, you know, and that's what they're missing. They're just joking that, Hey, she's napping. That's her form of meditation. And so, but there's a myth out there for a lot of people that, that that's why I bring it up. A lot of people think if I do that, I'm going to fall asleep, which the teacher that I was studying under with the, the esoteric training, she had a, what I thought was a rather interesting analogy. She said, sometimes you can update your software and the program stays on. Sometimes it says we have to close the program to do the update and then we'll bring the program back online. Mm, good and analogy. Interesting. So maybe that going to sleep was a, allowing the wiring that, that you know network that connects the brain to the mind to make some changes so that we can look at things, listen to things, and do things differently. I oh, love that. Good. 
I love yeah. that, Barry. That, that is so cool. Right, so to wrap up here, what for each of you has been a myth of mindfulness that's impacted you? In other words, it's, that's been a block at times during your lifetime in, in being mindful. Uh, this is Alan again, if I may speak. Uh, I'm just going to go back to what I mentioned before because this does come up to me a lot. Is I think not, how, not knowing how to work with your own emotionality. For me, I can really feel that if I've been emotionally hijacked, then it is that becomes very difficult for me to even apply meditation or mindfulness in any way. So that's that's a big one for me. I think. Oh, Mike, that's a good one. I I think for me, it's I'm not doing it right, or I'm not doing it enough. I, you know, I'm not spending enough time in my formal practice, or I'm not spending enough time in my, you know, informal or applied practice. And you know, for me, just continuously reminding myself that, you know, I, I am enough, my practice is perfect, whole and complete, and and go with that flow of life. You know, we know the grass doesn't, you know, grow year round. There's there's times that my practice grows really, really great. And there's times that my practice slows down and being in the flow with that in those times of I'm not enough might support some of our, our listeners as well. Mm-hmm. Love it. I think that's one people really fall into that judgment of how I'm of how I'm practicing mindfulness. Yeah. For for me, because of my uh, empathic nature, my emotions have always been like anywhere from huge to ginormous. I just feel so much. And and it could become debilitating at times because I just I wasn't able to process it, didn't know what to do with it, couldn't understand it. And I started studying and actually got to know a number number of uh, special forces. And when I was talking to a Navy SEAL commander, I asked him why in all the books and literature and movies, we never hear about emotion. And so are you guys more like Spock on, on Star Trek where you've learned how to suppress it enough that it just doesn't get in your way? And he said, no, that nothing could be further from the truth. The emotions is where the instinct and the intuition live. We need that razor sharp. I'm like, okay, well, then I don't get it. And he said, what we learned is the more that you focus on the emotions, the more you exacerbate them. The more the mind focuses on the body and the body focuses on the mind, that's where the emotions will be in the best place possible. So what it really comes down to at that level of performance is what does the mind think about what's happening with the body and what is the body doing about what the mind is thinking? And that's where they came up with the mind body, not mind emotion body. The emotions will come along just because they're there. It's the relationship between the mind and the body. So his, his suggestion was whenever you see somebody who's emotionally out of sorts, zoom the camera back and you will see a mind and a body that are not communicating well. And so that's become something that, that I've learned to live with. When I start to feel emotional, I step back and start thinking about what's going on physically and what am I doing physically to handle whatever I'm dealing with mentally. And I feel better. I love it. Well, I want to I want to thank each of you for an awesome show this week. And for everyone listening, that's Alan Anderson, Barry Moniak, and Holly Duckworth. You have been listening to. You can learn all about each of them and our entire brilliant cast at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Once again, that's everydaymindfulnessshow.com. And until next time, may you enjoy everyday mindfulness 
in your life. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks. We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com and check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.